Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Jesus in the selfless life. That is the title of the sermon this morning. I want to talk to us about the kingdom way to true peace, joy, and freedom. Real fulfillment. How do we get there? Father, we open up our hearts to you now. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Father, your word says that the Spirit has come to convict, to challenge, to comfort, and to remind us of what you've said, to lead us in the way of Christ. We pray that you would do that now. And all of God's people said, amen. Have you ever heard of the Greek tragedy of Narcissus? You ever heard of this story? Narcissus was a good-looking guy. I mean, he was so good-looking, he could have any woman he wanted. And he was told never to look at himself Uh, in the mirror or to see his own reflection but yet Narcissus did just that he went to get a drink at a pool of water saw his own image became infatuated and obsessed with it couldn't stop looking at his own image and he stayed there until he died There's a limerick that goes like this. There once was a nymph named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious. So he stared like a fool at his face in a pool and his folly today is still with us. And of course, this story gave rise to the term narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder, the official term, which is when someone is so self-absorbed and has such an overinflated ego that they see themselves as extra special, better than everyone else. Also, they're hypersensitive, fragile, defensive, impulsive. They feel entitled. They exaggerate their good qualities. They lack the ability to empathize with others. They're power hungry. They're oriented towards success at any cost. And their self-absorption is so strong that they can't see how their views are detached from reality. Now, true narcissism is the extreme, of course, right? But we all walk around manifesting a number of these traits, don't we? I mean, you're listening to that and you're probably thinking, well, I I guess I 
that sounds a little like me, or that sounds like the person sitting next to me, or that sounds like my wife or my husband, or that sounds like this leader or that person, right? We, we do this, but we can certainly see then this sort of self-absorption at work in our own lives and in American society today. Well, what we might call a cultural narcissism that we should know is much bigger than any narcissistic leader that you might want to name today uh, because those leaders truly reflect the entire social, moral, and psychological state of society. So be slow before you point the finger and say, that person is the problem because those people usually reflect all of us at least the overall state of our culture. And this cultural narcissism that we see today has been a long time coming. In his book, Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us, the journalist and novelist William Storr, Will Storr traces the history of individualism in the West and how we became such a self-absorbed culture. Until ancient Greece, 2,500 years ago, societies were collective in their thinking. Uh, that is, that the only way to truly understand who you are is in your connection to the whole, in your connection to the larger group. And we still have, I would say, the majority of the world still operates out of this collective thinking. And sometimes we would see that and say that's sort of anti-American, that's not what we're about. But I want to challenge this today to think about whether or not it's really healthy what we're about. Uh, there are studies that have been done. If you look at Asian cultures, which are typically still collective today, they've looked at Asians who take selfies versus Americans who take selfies. And Americans, it's always just your face. With Asian selfies, it's usually them with a group of people. And this is really representative of that. They've also done studies where uh, they, they have folks look at a fish tank and all of the Americans stare at the one glittery fish in there and all the others can report back and tell you what else was in the tank. So we've been conditioned, this is the water, if you will, that we swim in, maybe pun intended there, and we need to recognize it. We need to see this. So, but this goes back to ancient Greece. Consider this, the, the, the geography of ancient Greece was made up of many islands. And so this impacted the view of self, right? There was, they were separated little islands, which they all lived on. And this is where we get no man is an island unto himself, right? So this impacted the way they viewed themselves. It impacted their psychology. Uh, it impacted their politics and their, their economics as well which all shaped Western thought, eventually the founding of our own country. So rugged individualism against a more collective communal mindset, which by the way is what is required of healthy churches. Maybe one of the greatest threats to us living out church life the way Jesus intended is the rugged individualism that's so pervasive in our culture. We don't have this sense that we belong and that we're connected to one another as other cultures do, certainly the way the New Testament culture was. So you take all of that, you couple it with our own unique geography 
that we're on a continent isolated from a lot of other cultures and ideas, and that has set us on our own current path. The way we see ourselves, the way we view the world, the way we look skeptically at other, other people groups in the world. And then as Storr points out in his book, something happened in California, of all places, in the 1980s that quickly backfired on us and has had some serious consequences. It was the self-esteem movement. After almost two millennia of the West being influenced by a Christian worldview of the self that says that we are born sinners in need of a Savior, some me-generation hippies decided enough is enough. People don't need to hear that they're made in God's image but broken and not as they should be. That's not helpful. It makes people feel bad, and, and we want people to feel good about themselves. And so for the first time in human history, we say the reason that people misbehave and aren't thriving isn't because they think too much of themselves, which is what all other traditional cultures would have said, that, that the Greek idea of hubris or pride was the root of, of all evil, but rather they said, we don't think highly enough of ourselves. In fact, we all just need to see the divine spark in ourselves and we're all gods and goddesses and we'll have a better society. And since then, the American collective conscience began to shift by positing that we're all victims in some way. Products of our bio biology, of our upbringing, of, of evolution and our environment. Which notice means that we no longer get to make moral judgments about people's bad behavior. I mean, if you're just that way because of your biology or because of your environment, you know, it's like we can't fault you for that. We can't call out the bad behavior. And so we began to promote the idea that low self-esteem is the reason for every social ill in American society. Some of you who lived through the 80s and 90s in school, you heard this a lot this self-esteem movement. It's the reason for drug use. It's the reason for abuse, domestic abuse, for crime of all kinds. Therefore, simply promoting a high self-esteem was thought to be a social vaccine that would stimulate human health and pro productivity. Now think about this. At the same time this is happening, we have the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s, which meant deregulation, the dismantling of unions and protections for workers. So gone are the days of trusting that the company will take care of you for life or that you can stay in one job for your whole life. Essentially making one-to-one -one competition the defining characteristic of human relations. According to the American empire, human beings are just competitors and consumers. Hmm. And so this pushes us further away from our neighbors. Front porch life is gone. It's all about consumerism. More moved toward hyper-individualism, every man for himself mentality. If you're going to make it in this world, you better just look out for yourself and do whatever you can to stand out and get ahead of the rest. Be unique, be special, be different. Stand out. Are you getting the picture? Now, where does this lead us? 
Well, we have found that hyper-individualism, stroking people's egos and not confessing our sins, partnered with secularism, neoliberalism, American Idol contests. You, you know, I remember watching American Idol back in the day when it first started, and you have these people that come in and they think they're great, right? Because everybody's told them that they're great, and they really stink. <laughs> they're really bad, you know? But they think they're the greatest thing in the world. What has, how did we get there? How did we get to where everybody gets a trophy just for participating? I mean, we don't want to hurt people's feelings, right? There are no, there are no losers. It's just second and third winners. How did we get there? Well, we partner this, as I said, with secularism, neoliberalism, American Idol contests, partisan politics, social media, and a smartphone with a self-facing camera has led to the most self-obsessed, isolated, lonely, depressed, anxious, consumeristic, and exploitative culture on the planet. And everybody else in the world seems to see this except us. We're like Narcissus, staring at a reflection in the pool. And we falsely believe that it's through more self-absorption. And so we kind of go through our day uh, uh, analyzing ourselves and reflecting on ourselves and dissecting every little feeling that we have. And we live like this in our heads and absorbed with ourselves. Instead, we, we all know that by doing this, we just keep coming up empty, yet we do it. Because that's what happens when you try to find your identity, your meaning, your purpose, and your sense of self-worth in anything other than the Creator. This was the thinking, I, I believe, behind these words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 39, you've, you've probably heard these verses before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Focus your attention on the Creator. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then Jesus said this, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said all of the scriptures, all of your faith could be summed up in this, love maker and love neighbor. You see, God loves us, so we ought to love him. Why? Because our soul finds rest in God and in his love. As St. Augustine said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. And so this new orientation ought then, I think Jesus is telling us this, to lead us to loving others because it's in self-giving, not in self-absorption, that we find life. I'll say that again. It's in self-giving, not in self-absorption, that we find life. And what does Jesus mean by telling us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? I mean, some in the self-esteem movement are trying to say, hey, Jesus even said love yourself. Look, Jesus is really pointing back to the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love, Jesus, the word here he uses, agape, is, is a word for self-sacrifice. Love in the service of others. Obviously, this isn't a self-absorbed, give so I can get sort of love. After all, remember what the Apostle Paul said about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember that starts off, it says love is patient, love is kind, and so forth and so on. And then he says, love is not self-seeking. 
And while Paul first directed this to a collective culture, not an individualistic one like ours, it is obvious in the New Testament that regardless of what time and culture that we've grown up in, we are all human beings who have an identity problem. Hear me. We have an identity problem, and we live with primitive impulses that drive us to be self-centered, egocentric, and unloving. You see, because you can't love yourself and love others. Not in, not in the way our culture defines it for us. Take, for example, this story in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. If you want to open up there, I encourage you to do it. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. James and John, close disciples of Jesus, come to Jesus with a question. You really see the contrast between egocentric sort of living and the self-giving love that, that Christ is all about. Look at this. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, to Jesus. They said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, there's your first clue. This isn't going to go well, right? <laughs> just go to Jesus. Hey, hey uh, I want to ask you a question, and, and in, the, in the get-go, just want you to say yes. Can you do that for us? They replied, let one of us sit at your right. Now, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So they know Jesus is talking about he's, he's Messiah. He's going to bring the kingdom. But they're still thinking worldly kingdom. They're still thinking worldly power. You imagine these disciples are, are sitting back and they're, they're imagining what it will be like when, the, when, when Israel is in charge again and where they're going to be sitting at the table, just daydreaming about that. And so they go to Jesus. They say, we want to sit on your right and your left. We want to be in the top places of power when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Right? We all know what kind of kingdom Jesus is about. We all know what kind of cup Jesus is going to drink from, but they don't. But Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am about to be baptized with? They said, oh, we can. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. The cup, of course, represents, well, so, there's different views about this, the cup of of destiny, of, your, of one's future. This also could be the cup of suffering, the cup of wrath. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard this, so the other disciples, they hear about what James and John have asked. Well, how do you think they felt? Jesus called them together and said, because they're all upset with each other now. They're especially upset with James and, and, and John. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over. They power over people. And they're high officials. They exercise authority over them. That's the world's view of power. But Jesus said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. These are the people that wash feet, that serve tables. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, why do we have such a hard time with this? Well, it's because it's upside down. 
as things are in the kingdom, right? This way of Jesus, his, his way to peace, to joy and freedom doesn't appeal to our flesh and our animalistic desires to want to be in control, to want to have power, to be self-absorbed. Instead, it's the path of selflessness that we're being called to, a higher way, a new way of being human. You see, it may be your base impulse. It may be evolutionary, if you're comfortable saying it that way. But Jesus is calling us to something higher, to come out of it. You see, but in order to get there, we have to do something that feels counterintuitive to our fallen selves. Something that goes against what we feel is our nature. Nevertheless, it's the place every disciple and all those who want to follow Jesus must begin if we're going to resist the narcissistic patterns of this world and reveal the power of the gospel to our neighbors. Listen to what Jesus said a couple chapters earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Verse 34 there, say no. So what Jesus is saying, say no to doing whatever you want. Because sometimes what you want is not what God wants. Say no to the easy road. Say no to the selfish way. Say no to the one and the way that benefits you. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. This means be willing to sacrifice in order to follow Christ. There is a cost but it's worth it. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German Lutheran pastor who died in the, in the Holocaust and was hung for high treason for protecting and aiding and embedding Jews, said when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. You see, there's no way to be a Christian and not be willing to sacrifice, not be willing to say no to the flesh, and to follow in the Jesus way. There is a cost, but look, it's worth it. Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let's put it another way. Jesus is saying, for whoever wants to operate out of self-preservation and self-absorption will not truly live. But whoever follows in the Jesus way will discover real fulfillment and salvation. You see, for Jesus, it's not about an ivory throne. It is about a water basin. You know, we have that in our logo, the Brethren in Christ. We have it up here behind me this morning. This symbol of selflessness. This symbol of servanthood. You know, you know this, if you're honest with yourself, the natural state of the human self, the, the ego, is empty. And we, we walk around and we sense this every day, don't we? The, the natural state of the ego is, is emptiness. It's fragile. It's always feeling inadequate. I'm not good enough. So it's busy seeking to find meaning and purpose apart from God or with God plus something else. <laughs> right? Life apart from God or with God, but with something else tacked on. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was all about. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. Us trying to find life apart from the one 
way that we were created to receive it. Think about it, Genesis 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about us getting our worth, our identity, our purpose and power from ourselves. Remember what the serpent said, you can be like God. But what the first humans discovered and we still experience today is that in order to achieve it, because we're not creator, when we reach in and sort of try to, to, try to be uh, this life-sustaining creator, we have to resort to comparing ourselves to others to get that kind of life. We have to judge others. At least I'm not like them. <laughs> That's how I feel good about myself. I've achieved more than that other person. I see myself as better. So we compare ourselves, we boast in who we are and in boast in what we've done. Or there, there's an opposite to that. It's still really the same thing, maybe a darker side. A self-loathing or self-obsession is also you being stuck on yourself. Continually playing the ego game in our heads in order to feel good about ourselves. And folks, isn't that exhausting? What if I told you that Jesus is showing us a way off this crazy train? One that Ozzy knew nothing about. Yeah, I believe the Apostle Paul began to understand this later in life. Listen to what he wrote to the church in Corinth where they were divided over their favorite teachers. Remember, I'm a, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Paulus, I'm a follower of Cephas. You remember that? There were th these, these difference of opinions, competing opinions about who was most qualified to leave, lead, lead them. And this is what Paul wrote. He said, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he said, it matters very little to me what you think of me. Even less where I rank in popular opinion. I don't even rank myself. Comparison in these matters are pointless. The master makes that judgment. And folks, what does the master think of you? If we follow the God who looks like Jesus, we ought to know. Don't miss what Paul is saying. He is saying, I don't care what you think, but you know what? I don't care what I think. I have a low opinion of what you think, but I also have a low opinion of what I think. Now, folks, that's much different than the attitude many Americans have when we say, I don't really care what you think. Listen, Paul is saying something different. Because when we say it, it's usually said to protect our ego, right? The walls and the defenses go up. I don't care what you think, that this is hurtful. I don't like the way it, it is damaging and makes me, it's not about your feelings, it's about your ego, right? See, my feelings were hurt. No, your ego was hurt. And so the walls go up. I don't care what you think. But that's not what Paul is saying. It's not what he's saying. What happens is we go on living with thin skin. We can't receive any criticism. Therefore, we fail to listen or learn from what God may be saying to us through others. And we miss an opportunity to root our identity in someone eternal and unchanging. Folks, this may be the, the most important, the greatest lesson to learn in the Christian faith, who you are in Christ. 
we miss this lesson so often, this one that Paul had learned. You see, here's the problem with trying to solve our ego problem in the way of the world. We don't know how to heal low self-esteem or self-loathing or self-hatred except with puffing ourselves up with pride. That is why I say don't fall into the trap of high self-esteem or me-centered American pop psychology. It's a trap. It's a trap, number one, because it's still taking from the wrong tree. And number two, you can still feel good about yourself while believing something wrong or behaving badly. People do it all the time. Folks, Hitler's self-esteem was fine. And he was a monstrous human being. Again, that's why we need something more than the constant inflating and deflating. The inflating and the deflating of our ego, right? We feel it every day. We need more than the temporary hot air of the world. Instead, we need our souls filled with something solid and life-giving. More specifically, to be given a new identity by being filled with the Spirit of Christ. That is how Paul was walking in the way of the Lord's peace, joy, and freedom. He knew who he was. Look what he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I believe Pastor Melissa mentioned this one last Sunday. My old self, Paul said, has been crucified with Christ. When Jesus died, my old self died. It is no longer the ego who lives. You know, that's the Greek word, ego, for I. It is no longer the ego who lives, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me. This is where my identity is fixed. I am loved by God. And he gave himself up for me to prove it. Folks, this is a divine reality. Now maybe by the power of the Spirit of God, like a, like a dove at Jesus' baptism will come on you and, and like a warm blanket, you'll get this this morning. But for most of us, and I hope that happens, but for most of us, this is a daily thing. We must put off the old, Paul would say in Colossians, and put on the new. It is a constant exercise. Because when you receive Christ as Lord, you're a new person. By the cross of Christ, you've come alive to God, and you've received his very life in you. And this means, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Listen to that. The verdict is in You've been forgiven and set free. You have God's favor, not because of anything you've done or ever will do. And so you can now live freely out of God's mercy, grace, and love. You have nothing to earn and nothing to prove, just a life of love to live. But listen to me. You and I, we've believed lies for a long time. Right? And from the moment you came out of your mother's womb, you were believing lies and being told lies. You've been conditioned to believe differently by a self-obsessed culture. Your flesh will want to find another way. And I want to tell you this morning, don't do it. 
Deny yourself over and over and over as you follow Jesus and immerse yourself in this truth again and again and again. Meditate on it. Pray about it with your friends. Sing it in worship. Hear it through the preaching of the scriptures and live into it through the liturgies of the church. That's why they're there, to shape your identity and a whole new way of living in the world. And slowly but surely, you will be able to respond to the hurt feelings of your fragile ego with, I know who I am. I am a son or a daughter of the king. And then you'll be able to let God fill your emptiness with the joy that comes by then putting others first, by loving others when you just want to lick your own wounds, and by living for others when you just want things your way. Because we know that in the kingdom, the way up is down. The way to wholeness is through selflessness. And the way to peace, joy, and freedom is through serving others. Not to gain anything, not to earn anything, not to be pardoned, but to experience the life of Jesus. That's why Paul wrote and recorded these words in Philippians chapter 2. You can't talk about selflessness and not go to this passage. Paul said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. The New New Revised Standard Version says, think of others as better than yourselves. This isn't about your person or your worth. This is about your position. It's about your position. See yourself in a lower position. We're invited to humble ourselves and act out of a servant's heart. He said, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That is, live for others. This is servant leadership. And then look what he says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Jesus is the example, and he quotes from this ancient Christian hymn. It goes back to the first decades of the church. He said, who being in very nature God, Jesus was God, but he didn't go around saying, I'm God, worship me. Now, he would have every right to do that, but Jesus doesn't do that. He did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus chose this better way, this higher way, the full way of being human, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that every, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is good news, church. I pray that we will receive it this morning. Finally, let's sum up the message this way. To begin to prepare ourselves to receive communion, to come to the table where we are all equal, where we are reminded in a tangible way that we are loved by God and can operate out of his joy and his freedom and his grace this morning. How can we be selfless like Jesus? 
I've already touched on these. I'm just summing it up this way. Number one, stop playing the ego game. Isn't it exhausting, right? Don't you want better for yourself? Don't you want better for others? I mean, when you really get in touch with the Spirit in you, look around at your neighbors, even the ones that, that, are, that are annoying to you, right? And just, what's the matter with that person? You know they're loved by God, and there's a part of you that says, I want to be able to love them. And folks, the way to do it, to truly love yourself the way Jesus wants to and to love others is to stop playing the ego game. Number two, we can be selfless like Jesus by rooting our identity in the gospel. How do we do that? I said it could happen instantaneously, but, but my guess for most of us, as it was with the Apostle Paul, this is something we must live into and choose to put on every day. We root ourselves in our identity in the gospel through prayer. Being mindful, first off, of our thoughts. Here's a good test. Go to the mall, if you're comfortable going to the mall at this point. Go to the mall, sit on a bench, watch people walk by, and be mindful of how your brain is working. Because this is what you do. You will find the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at work. Well, that person's overweight. Well, that person's ugly. That person needs to take a bath. That person isn't, isn't as good as I am. Whatever, our brain is constantly working. And Jesus is calling us into a way that says, stop that, get off that crazy train, and root yourself in something, in someone who is eternal. Do it through prayer, do it through scripture reading, do it through worship, do it in community with your small groups and in personal spaces, that together we'd be reminded of who we are and what it means to be counted as a child of the King. And number three, lastly, we can be selfless like Jesus, I've been intentional in living an others-oriented life. When you're feeling self-absorbed, this is going to be hard. This is so hard, I know, but you can do it. When you're feeling self-absorbed, when, you've, when it's, it's become all about you and about what you want, or you're, even just, you're just down on yourself, go serve somebody. Try it. Go do something good for someone else. When you're feeling self-absorbed, deny yourself and go serve somebody. Look to your neighbor right now. Say, deny yourself, go serve somebody. Deny yourself and go serve somebody. Brothers and sisters, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote that in the last days, people will become lovers of themselves. I'd say that we're certainly seeing that today, which is why we have the high calling and a kingdom opportunity for such a time as this to follow Jesus and the selfless life. It's Jesus and the selfless life, not Jesus and the selfie life, Jesus and the selfless life, so that the world might know the difference in the gospel. And the gospel, the difference the gospel truly makes when we live for others and not for ourselves. May God help us in doing that together as a church. Father, we 
thank you for first loving us. We're reminded of that this morning, Lord, that we love you because you first loved us, as the scriptures tell us. When we were at our worst, you died for us. And you did it out of love. You took our sin, you took our, our punishment, you took up the wrath that we were accruing by our evil. All that was coming our way, our karma, if you will, and you absorbed it. This is the sort of absorption that you're about. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you for this, this reminder in the table of which we're about to partake. That you died for us. You thought about us so that we could live for others. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us to receive this word so that through it we might know your peace, joy, and freedom. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.